Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And this is the worst because not only were they rejecting what they saw in Jesus and what they heard from Jesus and what they, they knew the Old Testament said Messiah would do, but they were making it difficult for others. These are the religious leaders, remember. These are the ones others are looking at who are looking at Jesus and, and they're saying, no, he can't be the one. No, he's, he's speaking for the enemy. He's working for the enemy. In today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, Religious or Righteous. We begin today in verse 33 of Luke 11, where Jesus addresses what he calls an evil eye in those that would reject him, and he goes on to proclaim the uncleanness in those who believed themselves to be clean. So let's listen in. He moves to an illustration that explains what he saw as he was working his miracles and teaching and sharing these parables. He says in verse 33, no one when he is lit a lamp puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. Now that's the part they all understood. If you light a lamp, you light it so that people can see. So you light a light, you set it on the, the shelf in the house, and when people come in, everybody can see not just the light, but they can see everything in the house. Now he applies it. He says the lamp of the body is the eye. And therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Now, he's going to amplify all this, but track with me on it for a moment. What he's saying is, okay, you're looking at me and you're listening to me. But the way you look, the, the what you perceive is, is really determined by how you look. He says, if your eye is evil... Then, then, well, the, the, the light's not going to penetrate it. If your eye is good, your whole body will then be full of light, even as the whole of the house would be full of light. Well, Jesus, of course, the light of the world. When he speaks of having bad eyes, physically, that would mean diseased or blind. I had a, I've had an astigmatism my entire life. I've always been able to read up close until recently. That's starting to get a little harder. So, so physically, we know what, you know, bad eyes are all about. But ethically, an evil eye is just that, an evil or a wicked eye. It's looking at people. Well, we use that term, don't we? She gave me the evil eye or he gave me the evil eye. And, and, and that's what they were doing. They were looking at the light of the world, but they were looking with, with an evil eye. And he says, you, you look at the light that way. Well, the light doesn't penetrate. It doesn't break through to accomplish what it's sent to do. Socially, the idea of an evil eye or a bad eye speaks of maliciousness in effect and influence. And this is the worst because not only were they rejecting what they saw in Jesus and what they heard from Jesus and what they, they knew the Old Testament said Messiah would do, but they were making it difficult for others. These are the religious leaders, remember. These are the ones others are looking at who are looking at Jesus and, and they're saying, no, he can't be the one. No, he's, speak, he's speaking for the enemy. He's working for the enemy. So he says, take heed that the light that is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. 
When you get to 1 John, John does such a great job contrasting those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness. And he, and he says of our Lord, by the way, that in him is light and there is no darkness. Why? You can't mix light and dark. You come into a dark room, you flip on the light, the, the darkness has to flee. And, and what he's saying is, hey, listen, even the blind can feel the warmth of the sun, but they can't see its light. And, and these guys, these Pharisees, these scribes, these lawyers, they were, well, they were looking at the light of the word written and they were in darkness. They were looking at the light incarnate and the word incarnate and they were still in darkness. And John tells us in chapter three, right before he tells Nicodemus he must be born again, or right after he says, this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world, but men love darkness more than light. Neither would they come to the light lest their deeds be exposed as evil. Well, at this point in verse 37, we read a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, to me, I would think he should have marveled that Jesus accepted the invitation, but he doesn't really realize that he's not all that spiritual, the Pharisee that is. See, he was meticulously, and they all were engaged in making sure on the outward they looked as good as you could. But inside there were all sorts of issues, and those Jesus is going to address and deal with. He marveled that he hadn't first washed before dinner. It wasn't an issue of hygiene. It wasn't like, oh man, I mean, he's not washing up. No, it was a ceremonial washing. And, and it was really, well, it's not that God would have had a problem with it except for they considered this, well, I'm more spiritual because I wash this way. I'm more spiritual because I do this and I do that. It's more of all of that, you see. So the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. He says, you want to know what I see? And check the illustration that he uses. It's one we can all relate to. If you were having people over and you had just washed the dishes and, and you cleaned the outside of the cup perfectly, but the inside is just full of grime and, you know, gross. And, and you're like, here, let me get you some tea. It's like people that look at that cup and go, no way. And what's happening is on the outside, these guys are all cleaned up. They look great. But on the inside, the Lord says he sees them as being full of greed and wickedness. Now, there are two kinds of greed. There's inactive greed and active greed. What's the difference? Well, from God's perspective, they're both sin. But the point is, greed or covetousness is just wanting what God hasn't provided for you. And by the way, Paul, who said he could go through the Ten Commandments and do pretty good on the first nine, was busted on number ten. And if you go through and like, okay, I don't lie, I don't steal, no adultery, no, I don't do that, I don't do that, covetous. Hmm, don't really know that word, better not to get the definition. But once you get it, you realize you're guilty of it. It's not being satisfied with God's provision. It's desiring what others have. And in essence, saying that what you provided isn't enough. That's sort of a, a passive greed, a covetousness. This guy is guilty of an aggressive greed, not a passive one, an active greed. Jesus will say of these Pharisees, this guy and men like him, that they were thieves and robbers. And one of the things they were guilty of is they would go and, and uh, they would hold the paper on 
people's houses. Many of them were wealthy. And so, you know, husband dies, leaves a widow. Widow can't pay the mortgage. So they'd go and they'd say, oh, Lord, you know, please care for this poor widow as we throw her out on the street and repossess the house. And it's, well, they never prayed those words exactly. But they might as well have because he says, for a pretense, you make long prayers and then you devour widows' houses. It's Jesus' illustration. It's not just something that could happen. It's something that was happening. And so he's saying, here's why. Inside, greed and wickedness. Outside, look pretty good, all cleaned up. But again, that's a picture not of regeneration, but of reformation. It's religion, not righteousness. Foolish ones, did not he who make the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. What he's saying is, listen, it's not enough to, to look right on the outside. We need to be right on the inside. And the giving here would be the fruit, not the root. He's not saying, hey, you need to reform yourself. No, he's saying you need regeneration. You need transformation. You need God to work on the inside and then everything on the outside. Well, then that will begin to shine forth as God intends. Well, woe to you Pharisees, he says. Now, this is interesting because this Pharisee invites him. Of course, Pharisees hang out with other Pharisees. They're religious with the religious. And so he invites his buddies over. They're Pharisees as well. Some of them are scribes or lawyers. And, uh, and, and so he says, woe to you Pharisees, verse 42. First of six woes that he concludes this chapter with, and, and we'll conclude with them as well. You tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. What these guys did is, well, they took the law which said you were to tithe. In other words, this is how he cared for the temple. He cared for the priests, the Levites. He cared for the people. And if you had a field of wheat, you were supposed to take 10% of it and, and donate or dedicate that to the temple. If you had a field of corn, same deal. Well, these guys sort of took it to the extreme. They're like, well, we don't have a field of wheat, but I've got a little herb garden. Some of you have those in the window. Pam has one. You know, she grows her little herbs so we can have them in the window. And, and they would take their herb garden and when they produce seeds, well, they would count out, oh, nine seeds for me and one seed for God. Nine seeds for me and one seed for God. They were so meticulous about this little trivial thing. You think God was really that concerned about the one little seed? The whole point of tithing was an acknowledgement that all I have comes from God. So I'm going to trust you. I'm going to acknowledge you with it. I'm going to trust you for more. I'm going to be generous because you've been so generous to me. And so it was a starting point. It wasn't like God said you could give 10 and then make sure you stop there. But it was a place where they could acknowledge and do something very practical in the process. Well, again, he's talking about people with wicked and depraved hearts, people who were posing as something that they weren't. And so he's saying, hey, this tithing thing, it's fine. You ought to have done it. But you shouldn't have left the others. What others? Justice and the love of God. Taking care of people. You see, he would have been much more pleased had they fed the poor and clothed them and took care of them. We're called to do justly, to love mercy, 
to walk humbly, to, to obey the greatest commandment and, and the royal law. We've looked at those in the last couple of studies in some detail. Woe to you Pharisees, he says in verse 43, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. If you've never been to a synagogue, it's one of the things we do when we're in Israel. We visit one, and, and uh, the way synagogues are set up kind of interesting. They would have a bunch of seats up in the front, and then they would have most of the seats, as we do here, of course, out there. And, and to be up here would mean, well, you were someone important, someone, you know, well, the whole point is they loved being up there. They loved being up front. They loved being the center of attention. And, and by the way, if you're involved in any form of ministry that puts you up front instead of in the back, you need to be very careful about the things he says here. Worship leaders, it's a, it's a real temptation to, to forget that what we're really doing is just trying to bring people into the presence of God, make them aware that God is present where two or three are gathered together. There he is in the midst. And so, so we have to consciously think, well, I don't want to draw attention to me. I want to draw attention to the Lord. And, and, and so these guys, they loved the best seats. The best seats weren't the front seats there. They were the seats up here. And then he says they loved greetings in the marketplaces. Why? Because they were honored. They were recognized. They were esteemed. Everyone knew who they were. And they were all about that. Well, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 44. Hypocrites. You know that, hey, the Lord saying woe to you is a bad thing. When he calls you a hypocrite, he's just adding to it. But he says you're like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Now, this speaks to an issue that Jesus deals with elsewhere when he calls them whitewashed tombs. That picture comes from the preparation for the many who would come to Jerusalem for the various feasts and festivals. They would go out and on the roadsides, because people die on the road, and, and uh, you know, they basically would just dig, dig a hole and they would bury them there and they'd put a big stone over them. And, and then over time, the dirt would be there and the grass would start to grow. And well, it was part of their job to go out and, and make sure that they cleared those stones and whitewashed them so no one accidentally, and they, as they spread out on these roads with these masses of people traveling together, that they wouldn't accidentally step on a tomb or, or a grave because, well, if you did, you would be defiled. And the whole point of the going up to the feast and festival is to worship and to fellowship. And, and to be defiled means you're unfit for those things. You had to go through all these ceremonial washings and you had to make a, a donation. You had to do all this stuff. So, so that's the picture that, that, that really we need to have in our mind. But he says, you're like graves which are not seen. Elsewhere he'll say you're like whitewashed tombs. But here he says, this is the worst of it. People come to you. They think that they're going to get next to God by being with you. But the truth is you're defiling them because you're defiled. The men who walk over them are not aware of them. So, so the idea is corruption, decay, death. That's what Jesus sees on the inside. And these guys are supposed to be leading others into a relationship with God. Then one of the lawyers, verse 45, answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Now, sharp guy, he notices that, hey, this stuff, you're getting a little personal here. And I'm sure his friends are like, shh, shh, shh you know, don't draw attention to us. 
And immediately he goes from speaking to the Pharisees who would have been hanging together to the lawyers who were hanging together. And he says, woe to you lawyers. I can just picture him. Great. Here we go. What were they guilty of? He says, you load men with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, this is, by the way, a more common sin than you might really think at first reading. What they did is they were holding people, other people, to a standard that they themselves were unwilling to even try to keep. Now, as believers, I think we should have the highest possible standards, but we should be more engaged in making sure we're meeting the standard than making sure everyone around us is meeting the standard. These guys, again, they were saying, if you want to be spiritual, if you want to be acceptable, if you want to please the Lord, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. He says it was just burden upon burden upon burden so that, well, these guys, they never considered living up to the standards that they said others needed to live up to. They were adding to the word. They were subtracting from the law both forbidden, by the way, in the law. The other thing is, these are the guys who are responsible for interpreting the scripture. And we've gone down this road, we've used the many illustrations, but, you know, the, the law is so simple. God's word is understandable. He says, I want you to have a day of rest. Keep the Sabbath holy. I don't want you to work on it. So they get together and they're like, well, what's work? And they define work and it just gets, it, it starts out, well, walking further than a certain distance is work or lighting a fire on the Sabbath, that's work or doing this. And some of the things, you know, you could say, okay, I, I guess that makes sense. But then they get around to the things like putting on your wooden leg or using your false teeth as work. And I've shared with you, I mean, I think it's harder to get around without your wooden leg or eat without your false teeth. That sounds like work to me. But these guys had decided this is work and this is work and this is work. So what happens? The Sabbath comes, it's supposed to be a day of rest and you have to work so hard to rest that you don't really get to rest. It all becomes about what I'm not to do or, or did I walk too far or, oh man, did I violate this? And and the, the end result is people weren't feeling closer to God on the day that was set apart for relationship and fellowship with God. They were feeling alienated from him because they were constantly being bombarded with the idea that you're failing and you're sinning. And well, he goes on to say, woe to you, verse 47, for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness, you approve the deeds of your fathers for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Now, there would have been nothing wrong with building tombs to the prophets who had come. The real issue here is their fathers didn't listen to the prophets, so they killed them. Now, these guys aren't listening to the prophets either, but they're building monuments to them. And he's saying, this isn't going to work for me. That, that, that In the wisdom of God, he says, I'll send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they'll kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. He uses that phrase twice. He points us back, by the way, to the first martyr in Scripture. That's Abel, his brother Cain. Most of you should be familiar with this story. His brother Cain 
kills Abel because Abel worshipped acceptably by faith and obedience. Cain, he was more religious. He said, I'll do it, but I'll do it my way and God will accept it or not. Well, God didn't accept it and Cain was angry. He kills his brother, first martyr. The last martyr recorded in Scripture in the Old Testament is in 2 Chronicles and it's not Zechariah the, the um, prophet, but Zechariah the priest. By the way, 2 Chronicles, it was the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures and then when they translated to Greek, they uh, altered you know, and kind of rearranged the books as we have them now. But, but th the point is, uh, originally he's just pointing back, first martyr, last martyr, remember no New Testament, not yet at this point. So when he speaks of the Word, he's always speaking of the Old. And, and he says, I'm going to require this generation and from this generation the blood of all who've perished. Why? They were going to crucify him. They were going to be the ones who not only rejected the prophets, but rejected the Son of God who came to seek and to save the lost. And then in verse 52, he says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourself and those who were entering in you hindered, taken away the key of knowledge. You know, his word is the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And again, they added to it. They took away from it. They distorted it. A key is meant to do one of two things, either unlock a door so someone can come in or lock a door so they can't get in. Well, the key of knowledge was given to give us access so that we would know what God's about, that we would know what we're about. We know what he requires, what he's provided. By the way, he requires a perfect righteousness. And then since no one is righteous, no, not one, he provides that righteousness in the person and in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. But they took away the key of knowledge because they were substituting their ideas, their thoughts, their teaching for the things of God's holy word. And he says, you didn't enter in. And what's worse, they were hindering those who were trying to enter in. As bad as it is to resist and reject the Savior, hindering, stumbling, leading others astray, even worse. Well, as he said these things, the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him, seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. It's a tragic response to a radical confrontation Instead of confessing and repenting, they continue to quarrel and question, rejecting their only hope, the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Listen, communion, and we're about to share in it. We're going to take the bread. We're going to take the cup. It's a time for self-examination. And, and Paul tells us if we would examine ourselves, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So we examine ourselves. The purpose of the examination isn't to disqualify ourselves because if we were to say, well, I don't know, I don't know if I feel worthy. There are none worthy. The examination is meant to show us what we need to confess. And the confession, of course, accompanied by repentance leads to forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. That righteousness that is imparted and imputed to us as we put our faith in Him afresh. Lord, thank You for Your words of comfort and encouragement. 
As we study the life of Jesus Christ, we see his profound grace as he deals with people whose lives have been nearly destroyed by sin. He came to set those people free from the sin that enslaves them. But when he deals with those who not only reject him, but also would lead others away from him, we find him not nearly as welcoming and loving. I guess a good way to look at it is don't mess with his kids. Think about what it says in Matthew 18:6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow. I guess for the believer, one of the takeaways and application you would find in that verse is simple. As you find those who would teach as truth things that are not the truth as it pertains to the gospel message and our Lord Jesus Christ, it would be best to clearly understand how it's going to end for them. Probably best to keep your distance and not follow them, no matter how sweet the promises that they are making. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.